I'm turning tonight to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 and verse 25. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And our title for this message is A Time Bomb of Truth. Because we have here a remarkable parable before us, a parable with an immediate message and challenge to the hearer, to the questioner, a hostile questioner. It has a message for him, but a parable which also is an illustrated message which will become plain and obvious as time goes by. When Christ the Lord allows himself to be taken and arrested and he is tried and crucified, dies on Calvary's cross, then when he subsequently rises again and the preaching of the New Testament church begins just a little later on the day of Pentecost with an amazing sermon by the Apostle Peter and the Apostles and others begin to preach that Christ is Messiah and they preach his atoning death and the need for repentance before him in order to secure new life from God. Then the message of this parable, the underlying message, becomes obvious and obvious to the lawyer who first asked that hostile question. And to demonstrate this, I'd like to introduce the message just referring to one or two other scriptures. If you turn back to Luke 8 for a moment, and this just sets the context, and in verse 10, the Lord says this to his disciples, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. So the message of Christ, though plain in some respects, that people must repent and their sins must be taken away and so on, Yet, in other respects, it was somewhat obscured. And it had to be obscured. It had to be obscured while the disciples were being trained. Otherwise, they would have been arrested. There would have been uh, quite a movement against them. So many people were becoming hostile. There had to be a certain veiling of the message to quell the fury of nationalistic Jewish people at that time. Christ was working to a timetable. He knew the day when he would be taken and crucified, and nothing was to happen before then. So there was a certain shielding of the truth, but it wouldn't last. And in this very eighth chapter 
of the Gospel of Luke. We go down to verse 7, and the disciples were instructed, verse 17, the disciples were instructed in these words, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. The time is coming when the parables will no more obscure how Christ will take away sin. Well, that will have been demonstrated. He will have died on Calvary and risen again. It would be seen. The message is now plain and clear. Everything could be understood. And so things that were half-veiled, even the parables before, now can be spoken from the housetops. Nothing is hidden anymore. Nothing is secret. Truth is going to be open and clear. So you see, I remind you of these things. We studied it quite recently here in the Gospel of Mark. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew. And the reality is that parables concealed to a large extent, except to the very enlightened, except to the disciples, and that inner band. But with the fulfillment of everything, and Christ's suffering and dying, then everything would be plain and open. And that applies to this parable in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not called the Good Samaritan in the Bible, but that's the name it has and it's well known by. The parable of the Good Samaritan. It had an immediate message for the lawyer that asked the question, what sort of a lawyer was he? Well, he was an expert in the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. He was an expert in the moral law, as published in the scripture, and of course in the ceremonial law. He was one of those who studied these things in great depth. He doesn't appear to have any personal spiritual light. He doesn't appear to have any personal interaction with God or communion with God, but he's an expert theoretically in his subject. And he's against Christ. He's clearly hostile. It's, we're told that, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. It would, we had to understand that better if we read it as tried him, tested him. He was trying him out. If he asks a leading question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps Christ will plainly say, well, you, you won't get eternal life by the, the manner you follow of the meticulous observance of the ceremonial law. And you can't get it by perfect observance of the moral law, the Ten Commandments and so on, the moral requirements of God, because you're a sinner and you can't keep them and you can't reach the standard and you wouldn't succeed. So your whole philosophy that you will do well because you observe in a fashion the moral and ceremonial law of the Jews, you think that makes you safe. It doesn't. Now, if he could get a reply like that, 
that would stir up real trouble. They were the common people even would want to stone Christ at this stage in his work just before Calvary. So Christ gives a different kind of reply. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, to the lawyer, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And the reply he gives is, well, it's the Jewish creed, the creed of Israel in ancient times. This lawyer would have uttered these words in a form, a kind of prayer, twice daily. He answering said, it's a summary of all God's commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. It's from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus, and it was the creed of Israel. And you'd think that even as he said this, this lawyer must have been terribly self-righteous. Even as he said it, you would think he would be saying to himself, oh, but this is impossible to keep. The standard is too high for me. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbours thyself. The first four commandments summarized there, first of all, our duties to God, to love him and obey him and serve him and worship him. The next six commandments of the ten are duties to our fellow human beings, all the rules and what they encompass because Moses explained them wonderfully. Oh, adultery wasn't just physical adultery. It included adultery in the heart, lust, thought life. Murder didn't only apply to taking life, Moses taught. It applied to stealing somebody's happiness, stealing somebody's liberty. Slavery always was against the law of God. It applied to everything. Each of the negative commandments of God is only the chief sin in the family. The commandment includes, Moses teaches us, all the sins in the family. Not to bear false witness includes all our foolish, dishonest exaggerations all our promises made that are never meant to be kept, everything which is deceitful and wrong. And the law of God has to be kept perfectly. Actually, the purpose of the law of God for fallen men and women like us is not so much a standard, though it is that, it is to show us how fallen we are so that we come to God for mercy and forgiveness. That's the chief end, the chief purpose of the law, to bring us to our knees 
with the realization of our need of the forgiveness of Almighty God. But the man doesn't get it. He actually recites this back to Christ. And he doesn't realize the standard is too high for him. So Christ responds, verse 28, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Well, now there's a problem in this lawyer's mind. I suppose he says to himself, I cannot claim to have kept these. I'm certainly not going to admit to having failed. He was too proud. So what does he do? He tries a kind of diversionary tactic. A technical point he raises. Who is my neighbor? And the parable, first of all, replies. Christ could have given a reply in one word. One word would have done. Who is my neighbor? If I've got to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? Answer, everyone. That would have been sufficient. Instead, he gives a long parable. Why does he do that? Because it's working at two levels. There's an immediate message. Everyone is your neighbor. That's designed to convict the man, to reduce him in his own estimation, to challenge his self-righteousness. But then there's another message there. It's the parable is a picture. And he doesn't get it at first. But once Christ is crucified, risen from the dead, and it's clear he's not only Messiah, but this is how he takes away sins. He suffered and died for all who trust in him. He took the punishment of sin on their behalf. And it's by coming to him for pardon that he gives you new life. And you are in touch with God and you're given a new nature. Now once that was out and clear, this man might well have reflected that story he told me about the Good Samaritan. I see he was depicting himself. He is the Good Samaritan. It's a time bomb, you see. It's truth with a fuse attached. As the time went by, it became obvious Christ was talking about himself. I could turn you, but time doesn't permit, to the Gospel of John in chapter 8, where there is interaction between the Lord Jesus Christ and many priests and scribes and Pharisees. And there's a debate between them as to whether they really have standing with God and how they must trust in him. And to conclude this, they reject Christ, those priests and scribes and Pharisees, and they said these words, Say we not well 
that thou art a Samaritan. They insulted him and they rejected him. And that happened pretty well just before the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in John chapter 8. Within a week or two, it would have been, in, uh, before this narrative here in Luke chapter 10. Do we not say, well, they said it often. It was what they all said. We say this of you, and we're right. You're a Samaritan. How was that an insult? Well, the Jews regarded Samaritans as utter heretics. In previous centuries, they had taken the law of God and adapted it to their own purpose and twisted it and added to it. And their worship was blasphemous to the Jewish people and outrageous, and so were they. And so they had become almost a term of insult. You're a Samaritan. You're a misleader and a liar, and you're rejected by us. There was great venom in it. And the man, the lawyer, must have often wondered to himself after he was told the parable of the Good Samaritan, why did he have to go and make a Samaritan the hero of that story? What, how provocative is that? Why was he telling us that the priest got it wrong and the Levite got it wrong and it was a Samaritan who got it right, who was a hero? And then he calls Christ a Samaritan and he sees him rejected and crucified and risen from the dead. And then it becomes clear he was speaking of himself. We called him a Samaritan. He put a Samaritan into the story. And that's just how he acted. Let me show you, dear friends, and we'll go through the parable. Verse 30. Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. This is remarkable. A certain man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm sure you've heard this said before, or you've read of it. It's about 18 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road was a descent all the way. You went 18 miles, but you dropped half a mile. Just over 2,000 feet was the descent from one to the other. It was a steep, twisting, tortuous road. It was through rocky territory. There were caves without number. It was just the place for ambushes, and there were many. And that's how it got the name in later times, the Road of Blood. The Red Road. There were people waylaid and robbed and injured constantly. So question, in the story, a certain man in the singular went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Why did he go alone when it was such a dangerous route? 
Why unaccompanied? People looked for a group on that journey. He was confident. He was heedless. We're picking up the message of the gospel right from the beginning. It's about us. It's about you and me. Certainly true of me when I was younger. Confident. Arrogant, you might say. Heedless. This is a good life. This is a life where we can do well. We can have a good time. And we can get rich if we can. And influential perhaps. And maybe even famous. We're heedless. Never occurs to us there are dangers in this life. There are ambushes, spiritual ambushes. There are problems on this steep, rocky route. It has a bad reputation. It's a downward path, and life is a downward path. But I don't believe that. It's an upward path. Look, we say, when we're teenagers or young people, we say, I'm young, but I'm going to get more experience, more knowledge. It's upward all the way. Then I'm going to get a better job and a better job and make a career. And my salary is going up and up. And I'll be much better off at 30 than I am at 20 and much better off at 40 and very rich at 50. And that's how we see it anyway. It's an upward journey. So we think we can only gain. We can only improve. It can only get better. And one day I'll be experienced and knowledgeable. And the young people will come and ask me for advice and guidance. It's upward. But spiritually and morally, it's downward. All the way. And such character as you may have, there's a certain niceness about young people. There are good intentions. Often, quite remarkable sacrifices they'll make. Good things they'll sometimes do. It's not much, but it's something. Even that will be stripped away. And by the time you're 40, you'll be more cynical, more hardened, more selfish, more ruthless. Morally, spiritually, it's a downward journey. Even if you didn't worship regularly, when you were young, you had room for some sense of God, some sense of mystery. As you go on, you become increasingly cynical and unbelief takes over and you lose all that. It's downward all the way. Jerusalem to Jericho pictures the downward journey of life. And fell among thieves. I've already mentioned your character, such as it might be, is stripped away. Your intentions, your better plans and purposes. Sometimes, tragically, your love for your wife or your husband and even children. Stripped away. Children who were adored become teenagers who were a nuisance 
and young adults to whom people often get antagonistic. Family feuds. Things get stripped away and spiritual understanding. Now you're quite hardened. You're older now. Now you know all the arguments against God. Now you clutch at anything which you imagine disproves him and debases him. Fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment. You're losing out all the way and wounded him. Sin takes over. The first big sins. You had a bad conscience at first, but now you repeat those sins and conscience has fallen silent. It's easy now to commit them. Now you don't think about it. You sin away life with ease. Now perhaps you join the people who even try to make wrong right. They're even trying to change the laws so that all the historic values that we have held for centuries are criminalized. Conscience is so quiet. That's what happens as you get older. One of your very faculties, the faculty of conscience, is bludgeoned into insensitivity. Wounded him. Sins now control you. Lusts dominate. And departed. Leaving him half dead. Half dead. You're alive. You're conscious. And you're responsible before God for every sin you've ever committed. That's true of all of us. But we're dead in the sense that conscience doesn't speak, we're not interested in God, and we don't understand, grasp or want anything to do with him. Half dead. Responsible, but completely insensitive. This is a remarkable description of the human condition away from God. Verses 31, 32, very quickly. By chance, there came down a certain priest that way who passed by on the other side, and likewise a Levite, an assistant priest, if you like. When he was at the police place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Let's just say about these two verses for the sake of brevity. There is no help for your moral or spiritual condition from this world. The doctor can't help you. He or she is there expertly to help problems with the body, not your morality. Can't help there, unless that doctor happens to be a Christian with a message of salvation. Your friends can't help, your employer, your boss, your line manager. They're not interested in your spiritual condition. Try saying to somebody 
at the head of the company. I'm in trouble. I have a conscience about my sin. I need the living God. They'll think you're mad. They have no solution themselves. He or she is probably four times divorced. Nobody can bear him. He can't cope with his own life. He can't help yours. The world's got nothing to offer. Formal religion has nothing to offer. Sad to say, so many of the churches have abandoned Christ, are just uttering platitudes. That won't help you to come into touch with God. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. Why choose a Samaritan? Because that's what they called him. Say we not well, thou art a Samaritan. A certain Samaritan, he's really talking about himself. As he journeyed, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. We just sang. He saw the nations lie, all perishing in sin, and pitied the lost state this ruined world was in. The compassion of Christ, pity for us, for you and for me. Look at that man, that woman, but he knows us by name, throwing away his life, going to an eternity of judgment, wasting every breath he ever took, Wasting all the experience of life because he doesn't know the Lord and has never been forgiven and is not on the road to heaven. And the pity and the feelings of God are stirred. The good Samaritan represents Christ himself. He had compassion on him. Verse 34, and went to him. That's what Christ did when he came from heaven to earth and was born at Bethlehem and became a man, the God-man. He came to us to suffer and to die to make an atonement for sinners because God in his holiness can't let us off sin. His holy nature must burn up and judge sin. And if he is to show kindness to us, he must first come and take the punishment himself and be our substitute and suffer and die for us. And went to him and bound up his wounds, stopped the blood, stopped the process of death. That's what he does to us. He comes to us. We repent of our sin. We call out to him to help us. And he does. He stops the process of death 
forgives us our sin, pours in oil and wine to soothe and to renew and to promote the healing. He not only forgives, he remakes us. He gives us a new character and a new start. Oh, I've seen it so often. People who were haughty knew it all. I'm not against them. I was a thousand times worse than that, I'm sure. Everything you say, they brush it off. You cannot teach them, you cannot reach them, you cannot help them. But when at last they repent and come to Christ, he changes them. All of a sudden, that person becomes humble before God and open to his truth and longing to learn and to hear. What a change. You never thought it could happen. You never thought such a person could be converted. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast. Well, that's what Christ did when he came and suffered and died for us. The good Samaritan takes the weight of the person, puts him on his own beast, he can't use his own legs, and carries him to a place of safety on his donkey or whatever his beast was. That's what Christ does when he dies on Calvary, takes the punishment of our sin. He takes the burden for us and pardons us. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. He can't go too far into detail with parables. You can't search too much detail. It takes you off the track. You just look at the general sense brought him to a place of safety and care. And that's what Christ does to us. He brings us under the care and nourishment of his word and among his people, into his church if you like, where the word of God is preached and counsel and help is given. But he is the best comforter of all. He gives care. On the morrow, when he departed the Good Samaritan, he took out two pence, two denarii in the original, two days' pay, gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. He undertakes entirely for the healing and the future and the restoration of this poor victim on the red road. And it's a picture of what Christ does for us. Once you're saved, if you've truly repented and you've truly found the Lord, you're truly saved, you will never be lost. He is with you. He will keep you all the way through the journey. 
until you enter heaven. He will have you under his care. That's the parable. I wonder if this lawyer was among those who saw Christ crucified. I wonder if he was among those who screamed out, Crucify him! Crucify him! He's like a Samaritan! And in no time at all, there are the apostles preaching publicly, He is risen! He's risen from the dead! There are people coming to him, 3,000 on one day, 5,000 on another, bowing the knee to Christ from the preaching of the apostles. I wonder if at some point like that it dawned on him. He was the Samaritan. This is the Messiah, filled with compassion, came to die for a creature like me. I need his love and his pardon and the life which only he can give. I'm sure that's the fuse. It's been lit. It's run its course. Now that bomb of truth, as it were, opens up before this lawyer. Oh, the compassion of God and the loving kindness of Christ who died for an enemy like me. I wonder because many came to him when they heard of these things. And may you come, dear friends. You need the Lord. You need his forgiveness and his pardon. It is no vain thing to trust in Christ and to be converted. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all, move in our help, hearts, help us to understand, draw us to thyself. May we see Christ and his love, his dying love, and feel our need of him and come to him. Bless each one. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.